Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be talking about a fascinating book titled The Illuminated Window, Stories Across Time, published by Reaction, which is quite a unique journey, really, through stained glass installations that spans both place and time, telling us about diverse differences in technique, in style, in different places. And I certainly was surprised by the time range of the book, amongst many other things. So I'm very pleased to welcome the author of the book, Dr. Virginia Kiefo Regan, to tell us all about Illuminated Windows. Virginia, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you, Miranda. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Nothing makes me happier than talking (laughs) about stained glass. Okay. Wonderful. So can we start (laughs) off hearing a bit about you and why you wanted to write this book? Well, I really need to go back to childhood, quite (laughs) honestly. I have always loved art since childhood. Uh, making, doing things and everything. And I was, uh, I'm one of eight children, eight siblings with wonderful working class parents. My dad was a steam fitter and a union man, but they took us to museums and libraries. Hey, they were free. So that meant the government had them for us. So I just, just continued reading and looking and thinking and, you know, little by little, there you are through grad school and all this kind of stuff. Um, But basically, um, stained glass is a public art, which means anybody can see it. And it was never made so that someone could possess it and pass it on to someone else. It was always made for a specific purpose and almost always for a specific place. So that it basically meant it's the stuff you bump into, and I got to really love it. Fair enough. It's pretty cool. Um, Certainly, I was fascinated and intrigued to read this book. But I do admit I came in very much with one question on my mind, and it is the first question I have to ask you. There's a lot of stained glass out there. How did you possibly choose which places and examples to include in the book? Oh, well, how interesting that you phrased it this way. This is exactly the phrasing that my optics engineer, eldest son, came back to me when I said, Reaction Books was talking to me. She said, oh, no, give it up, Mom. You'll never do it. What? You will never focus on 12 objects. (laughs) (laughs) You will never. So I said, oh, watch me. I'm going to do it. And of course, then he, being the engineer that he was, uh, wrote me a lovely little note talking about the mystical meaning of the number 12, how beautiful it was as a number. It could be divided in so wonderfully symbolic and symmetric parts. And then its importance to the Egyptians, the Babylonians, all the way on and on and on. So I thought, isn't that fine? Um, Honestly, I, I picked 12 thinking, 
how can you how can you bring across the complexity of this medium uh, uh, unless you dive deeply into a number of different installations that are different? Because then, of course, once you've looked at one, you know, huge cathedral, there are many, many similarities. There are many similarities in a parish church. So, but basically also my, uh, my uh, uh, cushion, or shall I say great support, is that I'm a member of the International Corpus Vitriarum, uh, which is a Latin phrase meaning to assemble a body of knowledge. So that um, uh, we have been meeting since 1949, not me, actually, but since 1949, the institution has been in existence and it was born after the ability that people had to study the glass uh, close up because the windows had been taken out for protection during World War II to save it from destruction from the bombings. Um, so now that organization looks at later, later glass. At that point, it was just basically medieval and Renaissance glass. Now we're looking at later. But we're in many different countries. And every two years, we have a colloquia extending over days to enable us to include important site visits. Uh, there are times uh, we, they're scheduled where the windows are in restoration. So we have unparalleled opportunities to mount scaffolds, visit workshops, and discuss with all our colleagues. So that that honestly enables this, this ability to then look at such a broad range. It basically is with the support of international colleagues. And honestly, that is the way all knowledge helps. All knowledge is grown. It's basically when you're relying on other colleagues. So that's basically enabled that breadth uh, and the uh, Corpus Vitriarum has been uh, over 100 publications now, very, very careful analyses of windows uh, across Europe, including the Saint-Chapelle, telling you exactly what uh, elements of the glass are absolutely authentic, shall we say, from the 13th century, which would be the Saint-Chapelle, and which have been replaced in the 16th century or the 19th century. So... Um, with that, one has, as Shakespearean scholars have, right, the authentic text. And you then can work with interpretations. Mm -hmm. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's always fascinating to hear about the communities and the conferences and the colloquia and how they come together into things like these books. And of course, I'm not surprised that the examples you've just mentioned are the famous uh, cathedrals, the famous religious houses, because that at least is very much where my mind went uh, when I saw the book about illuminated windows. So sticking with that type or that, I guess, place for these kinds of windows, to what extent did these religious houses, as you said, kind of cathedrals are to some extent different, but there is a lot of similarity. Did they have kind of consistent themes in content and style across, for example, all the stained glass within a particularly massive cathedral or what sorts of variations what might we see? Oh, great that you asked that. They certainly change with time. Um, all art, all society, which I think we sort of forget today, is 
changes. It never stays the same. There are internal shifts and there are then also external shifts so that um, um, you have certainly uh, a monastery at one point, uh, for example, the Cistercians, we didn't discuss that, they uh, did not want to have figural windows. They didn't want to have pictures. So they had what we call abstract designs in using a grisaille, that is a, a glass that had uh, uh, is not blown with any color, but then uh, some a little bit of color within a design might be added, but not pictures. And then that changed radically in the Renaissance, and they had many, many pictures. So that... Um, we off, monasteries often had extensive use of this grisaille also to enable reading because they were constantly used by a group of people who were out in there uh, routinely many times during the day and needed to look at prayers and to, to sing and to, to respond. Um, parish churches also depend a great deal on the local people giving so that... Um, Yes, they did change, but there is no one really uh, a rigid sort of rule, you know, which which I think is wonderful. Mm. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, and I certainly was a bit surprised by that because, of course, the popular conception is sort of everything is rigid, everything is told in a particular way. So it was quite fun to see some of the differences through the examples in the book, um, some of which, as you said, were different funding. Obviously, there's the replacement aspect if things get damaged. But you also document in the book artistic shifts in stained glass windows throughout time. So can you introduce us to some of the more significant changes in this aspect? Well, I think I sort of need to look at, you know, very quickly uh, for your listeners, uh, the overview that mm. basically begin in the 12th century with Canterbury and speak of the martyr's tomb and the cathedral. And w even though you are using, uh, we are looking at, so we say, s vaguely, similar, vaguely. For, for the specialist, it would be vague. <laughs> Probably not. It would look like the same. Um, medallion windows uh, in made in complex designs and pictures within those medallions uh, that are abstract. That, that's what I mean, is that you do not have three-dimensional recession in space. You don't have any relationship. Something far away is the same size as something close up, just basically so you can tell the elements of the story. A great deal, one might say, like a good quality children's book, absolutely recognizable subject matter and brilliantly colored so it'll catch capture the attention. But you have a series of windows for uh, a um, describing in uh, easily recognizable means all of the great um, cures and miracles produced by Thomas Beckett, you know, uh, to people who prayed to him at his tomb. And you also have extremely complicated. I mean, I, I can tell you, daunting, even for the specialists, analysis of the relationship between Old and New Testament stories, which, of course, were created for the monks and were seen by the monks. Whereas the popular area 
was open space for pilgrims to come in. So you see always a, a very careful uh, understanding about who is going to see the windows. Um, the saint is giving us propaganda for the monarch, absolutely, all along, constantly comparing the present to the past and the divine uh, uh, rule of kings. Cologne Cathedral actually goes from the 13th to the early 16th, to the mid-19th, and to the 21st centuries in its uh, play of windows. Um, so, and the very last ones are uh, completely abstract. They are just sort of a color fields. They are not imagery at all. Uh, we also end up with Frank Lloyd Wright, certainly, and the light screens, which are abstract designs in geometric shapes. And then the final chapter actually is dealing with abstraction today and the spirituality of abstraction that goes across many, many um, religious denominations, uh, including uh, Muslim. We have the Pink Mosque in Shiraz, Iran, and we have Juan Villagrao, who is the artist who gave us the windows for Socrate Familia, up to um, uh, uh, wonderful people such as Kiki Smith, who designed windows for the Eldred Street Synagogue in New York, and Romy Fischer uh, uh, from Germany. So it is, it's, it's, it's a wonderful spread. And I had a lot of, I can tell you, I had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> I can very much imagine. I'd love to pick up on um, something you mentioned earlier in that answer, the idea of different parts of a church or cathedral being used for different purposes. And also that relation you drew with children's picture books, which are meant to be enjoyable, but a lot of them are also meant to be educational for children. So continuing that analogy, what sorts of lessons were trying to be taught and to whom through some of these stained glass in religious settings? Um, well, first of all, uh, these windows are expensive. I mean, there's, they're ex expensive today and at Certainly in the Middle Ages, before you had the Industrial Revolution, you the cost of producing glass and the ironwork that was necessary to hold that glass um, was quite, quite impressive so that only an elite client was able to afford it. But they, they all felt it was necessary. And that's what is so exciting about this, is that this is disposable income, not spent on, you know, jet setting around the world or, or um, you know, fancy food or whatever. But this is disposable income that is invested in a, an experience that is meant to be experienced by others. It's a communication. So people are quite serious about what subject matter is in there. Um, they always felt that they were speaking eternal truths to the people. And so therefore, the histories of the saints, as well as stories from both the Hebrew Bible, then called the Old Testament, and the New, the New Testament, the story of Christ and beyond, 
these were presented but mingled in different ways. Sometimes, quite honestly, they were esoteric, as I said, with the uh, analysis of how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament, but the pre- how did it prefigure you know, the, the, the advent of the Christ. Um, at other times, uh, they were quite, um, one might say, dramatic, you know, huge figures of power meant to reassure everything's fine. We're praying for you. Don't worry. Um, then you also have, um, um, you have a, 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 sometimes the ability to present uh, local stories. And often uh, later in the Renaissance, when you have uh, more of a uh, readership, we have actually uh, story, local stories, in, even in the vernacular, that are being represented in the windows. Mm, absolutely fascinating to see that variation. Um, I'd love to ask you about one of the examples in the book, because I admit there were some things that you talked about in this instance that I was not exactly expecting to come up. Um, so I'd love to ask you about the All Saints Parish Church in York and how we can see social status, piety, those bits I was expecting, but also gender roles and literacy, was a bit surprised by that, in the later medieval period, if we look at the windows of this church. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, All Saints, uh, first, let me put it a plug for All Saints. It is a marvelous building, fortunately a, a... very well preserved, despite um, uh, despite the inevitable destruction that came from uh, iconoclasts. Um, uh, so basically, the rude screen is new, uh, uh, but the effort is to look back very, very carefully. And the restoration was meant to bring the church into a worship space that would reflect the early 15th century. The windows, for the most part, happily, have survived. And so we can look and see that um, in the center, we're looking at St. Anne, who was the mother of the Virgin Mary. And she is standing there, well-dressed, definitely. We have to have someone well-dressed if she's in church, right? Uh, and then she is teaching the Virgin Mary to read and she's holding a book out and she has a pointer. And if we look back with what Chaucer tells us about the nun's tale, there's the story about the little boy who is learning to read from his primer, his prayer book. So that, um, we sometimes are very categorical about thinking that uh, contemporary ideas about gender discrimination, which still exists today, of course, um, were identical with times in the past. Uh, and we also think, oh, well, literacy is so terribly important. Well, it depends. <laughs> Frequently, we find that it is women in well-to-do families who were supposed to learn to read for the entertainment of other people. 
the men were busy in business or, you know, clashing about trying to be military and all of this. But women were supposed to keep the home sophisticated, well-running, well-maintained, you know, uh, and, and that everyone was well-educated. So that women were some of the earliest people who uh, engaged in popular reading, literacy. But that also did begin with having prayer books uh, that were in Latin and learning to read. And so here we have right in the middle, St. Anne, who at that time was considered to have uh, uh, had two additional husbands and that children from those additional marriages then uh, were cousins. And so there was something called the, uh, the holy kinship surrounding Christ. Because again, in the early 15th century, economics was based on family wealth and family connections. Your businesses with, oh, I've got family here, I have family there, and all of this. And then later, you, and, and as well as the concept of guilds. So, yep, women's literacy is absolutely there. Plus two amazing windows connected to literacy. One of them, the Corporal Works of Mercy, instructing people to feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, clothe the naked, shelter the homeless, visit the sick, take care of the imprisoned, and bury the dead. But in this series, bury the dead is not there because it was considered more of a clerical obligation. So these are things, when someone looks at it, they basically see someone like themselves a rather well-to-do person, well-dressed, again, parallel to the kind that Chaucer is, Chaucer is describing, coming in each one of these circumstances, coming to uh, uh, a home where there is a bed and a man is lying in a bed. His very worried wife is on the opposite side of the bed and the man is laying money on the bedspread. Um, so we identify ourselves. We also seeing him visiting the prison, in, th those in prison who are sitting there in stocks. So that um, it is meant definitely to instruct. And another one, another one is called the prick of conscience, which is about the end of the world. <laughs> and it is, and it is based on a um, uh, an English, you know, vernacular poem called the prick of conscience. And they're wild stories showing fishes rising from the sea to roar, fire falling from heaven, people hiding in their holes. So, and instead of being presented in medallions, the way we're familiar with, right? From Chartres or the Saint-Chapelle when we move into, or Canterbury, here the stories read left, right, you know, left, one, two, three, four, five, next level, one, two, three, four, five, like a comic book. So it's very easy to, to follow. The, the church is wonderful. Uh, it, uh, uh, people are uh, invited to come and see. And uh, it's it certainly, if anyone who visits York, they should not you know, leave without making sure that they have stopped and seen All Saints North Street. I am very tempted, in fact, to go see it myself quite soon. So I will definitely take you up on that recommendation. Um, but staying with the theme of people seeing themselves in stained glass, 
if we move over to Switzerland, um, how did the development and independence of Swiss cities and cantons influence stained glass? Well, first, let me be very clear. Long live democracy. <laughs> okay. Um, and we see in Switzerland a diversity of expression with small commissions because the windows are individually commissioned and they're about 35 by 25 centimeters. And at, uh, what is delightful is we can quote Voltaire, who in 1764, before the French Revolution, looked over to Switzerland and said, happy Helvetia, to what charter do you owe your liberty? The answer, to your courage, to your resolution, to your mountains. But I am your emperor. But I do not want you any longer. But your fathers were my father's slaves. It is that for that very reason that their children do not wish to serve you. So it's this charming sort of, you know, French view of, you know, common sense. <laughs> Here are people on their own and they do not need an emperor telling them what to do. And the Swiss did become independent and is in many ways the geography really um, helped to prevent uh, overrunning. Um, but because of... Uh, this evolution of art to be an expression of the individual and the home. You have many, many of these windows showing husband and wife with both their family devices. Uh, they, we call them coats of arms. They were not hereditary coats of arms in, in the same way that we're thinking of the nobility. And one in particular, a drawing we have, uh, is illustrated that instead of the the barred helm and the crest that is in the um, heraldry for nobility, we have a beehive, which of course looks a little bit like you know the curve of a helm. So the beehive, of course, is for industry, for hard work, and they become symbols of domestic industry and. On top of that beehive, over the husband's uh, coat of arms, is a man, you know, half-length man, and he's carrying a, a, a flail for fleshing, for threshing grain. And she, on the opposite, his opposite, of course, is the female, half-length, and she carries a distaff. So it's this wonderful good humor you know, turn on the, hey, come on, get off it. You know, do we need to have crested helms all the time? When have you put on a suit of armor recently, right? <laughs> okay. So um, the, that is the kind of good humor. And there was, uh, I also illustrate another, which is this, uh, a, um, a family, uh, uh, a family window, again, small, um, and it was given by Hans Jakob Baer and Elizabeth Frickner. So Baer is indeed like the word bear. So he, the donor, and I'm sure this must have been the donor. I cannot think that the artist would come up with this uh, with such a, uh, uh, that something could be misread at any rate. He, they had eight children. 
who were all included in the inscription so that we know that there were seven boys and one girl whose name was Adelheit. So at the top of the window, where you sometimes just have, you know, uh, people in the street and number of people, we have eight bears, little chubby bears, all standing on their hind legs, wearing belts and hats and their Swiss, you know, uh, their dulk, their Swiss dagger. And one of them has teeny little breasts, so we know that that's got to be Adelheit. <laughs> and the story is basically that um, Elisha was taunted by boys. This is from the Book of Kings. He was taunted by very unruly little boys. And they were selling, yelling and saying, you're an old baldy. And what happens is that the bad, naughty boys were mauled by two bears coming out of the woods. So that picture is in the middle. And guess how many bears, how many boys are there? <laughs> Seven. <laughs> so I'm absolutely convinced that this was put together, uh, you know, for a town hall or for a uh, inn or uh, even possibly for the... Um, uh, um, well, would would have been uh, a uh, a guild hall, mm-hmm. and he was sure, you know, Hans Jakob wanted to make sure when people went by, they weren't going to forget his, <laughs> and he achieved it. No, that that's an absolutely great story. Thank you for sharing it with us. Um, I'd love to ask you about something else in the book that I admit. I was surprised by and then almost annoyed at myself for being surprised at it. Because as soon as you said it in the book, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, of course these things have some interaction. But I admit in my head, stained glass was sort of old tech and the printing press in my head was sort of new tech. And I hadn't really put them together. But thankfully, you have. So can you tell us a bit about how the rise of the printing press impacted stained glass? Well... Absolutely. The printing press impacted everything. Uh, Suddenly it was possible to have an image, especially for the image, to have images exactly duplicated and widely distributed all over. International boundaries meant nothing anymore. Um, So the, it was possible, the sophisticated subject matter in these books and and prints, which included classical literature and allegories, all became something that was far more widely disseminated. And um, remember that the Dutch, we're talking about lowlands and its kind of heart, so we can use the up-to-date word we're using today, which would be the Dutch. They became very prominent as merchants. So... Uh, they adopted a Protestant uh, uh, religion, which downplayed the image in religious context, but, shall we say, in, you know, um, en revanche, as we say in French, right, that the image in secular context became more important. And municipal buildings, law courts, guild halls, private homes, all were vying to have windows. And uh, stained glass is actually uh, a, uh, a strange 
a strange English term because it isn't really stained. Okay, uh, the the Germans say you know it's pictures, you know painting, glass malerei. So it's it's basically painting on glass. So that these roundels, uh, if that's the term we're using them for, the the image was frequently painted on something about as large as maybe a, a good dinner plate. And but they were meant to be seen in a series, so you could have a series of the prodigal son, and you could have a series of uh, oh Jonah, you know the story of Jonah or the story of Christ or or any one of these these stories. But what they also did is that they looked to again contemporary literature and delighted, of course, in demonstrating their sophistication by allegories of the seasons, um, virtues such as prudence, temperance, justice, and fortitude, classical gods and goddesses, uh, and for the Dutch, especially an image of Joseph. Why? Joseph was the prudent student, the prudent steward of Egypt. And so therefore, Joseph's being cast off, but then demonstrating through his skills and his management, how he could save uh, Egypt from the disaster of a uh, famine, but also that then Egypt would become the breadbasket that would sell to the rest of uh, the Middle East. Uh, That demonstrates that God supports good management. So, um, without being uh, idolatrous or anything like that. And we see these stories being told in these um, uh, pieces of glass, again, we call them roundels, that are a single piece of glass, and invariably they're painted with a neutral color. They look basically like prints, but, of course, in my biased point of view, even nicer because they also catch something that is used, that began to be used since so around, let's say, the 14th century, easily. Um, a, a technique of silver stain, which is a way of taking a silver nitrate and using it so that it would tint the glass permanently. And that was used then to highlight architecture oh, or a woman's, uh, let's say, fair hair. If she had yellow hair, then the, the, uh, her face would be on the glass, but then her hair would be yellow. Um, and that, that technique had been used uh, in uh, the East, or in, excuse me, in the, in the Near East, uh, Middle East, um, uh, decorating lamps for sanctuaries uh, in, uh, in Muslim architecture. So that then that got translated over to the uh, over not over to uh, Europe through Spain, and then became absolutely important. And so these lovely images that are all sort of you know shimmering in terms of their 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 the light coming through and and illuminating these pictures, they then ha- are enhanced by this gold shimmer yellow. So they are absolutely lovely. And as you see, they were also, these kinds of stories were parts of furniture, such as a high chest given as a dowry. They had the same subject matter. Um, so, um, 
And you could, because they did not have that solid color, they did not diminish any of the light that you wanted to have coming into a courtroom or a, a home and, and, and not enabling people to see the paintings on the wall or the intricate carving on the mantelpiece. Hmm. Yeah, no, those are definitely some key developments there. Um, before we move to perhaps a more modern example, is there anything further we want to say about the development of roundels as well? Uh, I think the roundels um, are very much, if I haven't said this before, connected to the print. So in fact, at, at an early stage, printmakers, you have to, someone usually paints something and then the print is taken after that painting. Um, so that, uh, and then of course, you have to have a glass painter, which is a very different kind of a skill than for somebody who is etching a, a copper plate a glass painter able to handle that. Um, so that you have, early on, there was a development of an associations between painters and printmakers and stained glass makers, which also tells of a, of a sophisticated world. Uh, and it also, I guess this is, the time I should basically say something that maybe has been implicit all throughout. But what is thrilling about this is to see cooperation. Certainly, of course, artists were, oh, but I can do this better than someone else. It happens all the time. Whenever we're doing something, we say, pick me, pick me. I really do it well. I mean, why shouldn't we? But the idea that somehow a work of art is produced by somebody meditating in a closet and then a great burst of uh, personal, uh, so we say, genius, at, and then a construction, and that the, the recipient is there saying, oh, I'm so happy you have told me all about this. That's not the way art worked there was always a relationship between the client, certainly, especially for stained glass. Well, and printmaking in the same way. You're not going to go through the immense expense of engraving a plate unless you know that somehow you're going to sell it to somebody. And you are certainly not going to construct a window unless you know what building it's going to go into. So that there is this relationship. And uh, from my standpoint, you know, um, uh, a, an excitement about the ability of the artist to see the sense of the patron. That if, the, if an artist doesn't know that they are going to be really appreciated by a discriminating patron, it's hard to get up that enthusiasm to put in that, you know, 120%, right? But when you know there's somebody out there whose discriminating taste has already, you know, achieved this, this, and this, you're going to say, I'm going to be on that same level. One 
I know this, this is a painting. This is Michelangelo. Why do you think that Sistine ceiling was that good? He was competing against Botticelli down below, right? He came into a place and said, oh, all of these paintings on the lower level are looking like tapestries. They're meant to look like tapestries. I'm going to do something that looks like sculpture. So, yeah, it is. It, so, and it's us to us to see that we get the art that we support. So, in fact, my penultimate question is about kind of in some ways similar to what you've just told us about the Sistine Chapel, the, the mingling of styles, um, taking us to a more modern example. In fact, one that, again, people can, I believe, still see is the various different illuminated glass um, on show at Harvard University that you document is very much a mingling of artistic styles, a mingling of different references. Can you talk us through what's significant about this? Well, uh, fortunately, uh, the records are still kept in uh, the university archives. So, uh, and they're in English. Isn't that lovely? <laughs> and modern so, English, too. And modern English, yes. They're in modern <laughs> English. So really amazingly uh, easy to uh, look at. Um, the windows from the very beginning were meant to be gifts of the graduating classes. So the university built uh, Memorial Hall, indeed, to commemorate the sacrifice of those who had died in the Civil War. Um, and there were quite a few. Uh, it was a high number in, in relationship to those who set out and those who came back. Um, so they wanted to have windows that reflect scholarship and service, and frequently military service, because that's what they saw. But they wanted to see it they had first they had said from a time uh, before Shakespeare, and then they were a, they uh, there was some some uh, uh, leeway for that. But each class had their own committee, and at that time, an elite economic status also demanded a sophistication in the arts, and that. The artist knew the, 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 the artist knew that they were expected to work with the committee and the subject matter. And frequently they were on exactly the same social level or shall we say educational level, John Lafarge, uh, who uh, did two windows for the class. Uh, he was uh, a good friend of many of the Harvard graduates and, you know, worked with them, wrote, traveled, uh, counseled. Um, so it was an elite tradition, but one based on broad learning. At that time, entrance into Harvard was proficiency in Greek and Roman, well, well literacy. And uh, the assumption, of course, if you can handle Greek and Roman, Greek uh, and Roman well, well, then obviously everything else will follow. <laughs> so you, you um, 
So you see, uh, for example, uh, a morning, morning Athena. Oh, she's just absolutely wonderful. Uh, she's presented holding a uh, um, a memorial wreath. It's it's they're called a tene. It's a um, a memorial ribbon, and she's about to put this on a monument, which is of course absolutely classical uh, uh, tradition. Um, you've got many. Uh, You've got different kinds of people. For example, uh, Sarah Wyman Whitman uh, did a uh, designed a window in honor um, of the first director of the uh, Museum of Fine Arts, uh, uh, Martin Brimmer, and the window has Sir Philip Sidney in it, of course, uh, giving his, the tradition of his death caused by his wounds at the Battle of Zupton. And also St. Martin, because Bremer traced, uh, Bremer traced his uh, uh, heritage back to uh, French Huguenot roots. Um, so you've got uh, people uh, who are commissioning the artists, but also artists who are deeply aware of uh, um the demands, or shall we say, the the uh, the reception of their work. So, uh, and they were actually also asked not only to create a subject matter, but that the decorative form frame of the window was to evoke the uh, decorative patterns from the period of time that was being represented. So if you had Virgil and Homer, you had classical motifs, acanthus leaves, Greek keys. And if you were going to have something from Shakespeare, well, obviously it was in a Renaissance mode. So it was, it's, it's a, it's a, but it definitely shows that it is that synergism between uh, someone commissioning and someone executing uh, that is just gives us then a statement of uh, the, the past uh, speaking to the future. Mm, no, absolutely. Well, there's obviously so much more I could ask you about and so many more examples of illuminated windows that I'm sure you could have included in the book. But I think we'll leave it here with a sort of highlights tour of the book itself. Oh, with, great, great. Of course, more to... Um, there's so much more to explore, I'm sure. So I only have a final question. Uh, what are you exploring next? Is there anything you might be working on, whether or not it's about illuminated windows that you'd like to share with us? Well, the delight is I'm working with the fabulous Swiss. Mm. Yes, I am. The Swiss uh, International Corpus Vitriarum, the, their committee, has an online database called VitroSearch. VitroSearch. So V-I-T-R-O and then the English word search, S-E-A-R-C-H. And um, it's, uh, it's interconnected and you can search for subject matter, you know. And uh, so what I'm doing, simply because I've, I've, I've researched a Swiss glass in the United States for several publications, um, one of them coming out right now uh, that is profiling the glass at the, um, at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art and the glass at the Getty Museum. Uh, previously, I did publication uh, Central US 
that with the work in Chicago and Michigan and, and uh, uh, a number of other museums. So I had been looking at the Swiss and uh, happily, a great deal of it is around here. Uh, Princeton University has a wonderful collection. Uh, the Morgan, uh, the J.P. Morgan uh, Library and Museum has a wonderful collection. Um, Harvard University, ha- their Divinity School has a great collection. Uh, I'm not talking huge. We're talking about maybe 10, 15, and 20. But ultimately, um, there are about 200 panels in the U.S., and so um, it is now possible to uh, research and get them over to my fabulous Swiss colleagues, and they will then uh, uh, set them up on their uh, database so that they are instantly available to everyone. So um, it's a very exciting thing. Yes, very cool. Thank you for sharing that with us. And it very much speaks to the book we've been discussing. Again, for anyone who now wants to go read all about this, the book is titled The Illuminated Window, Stories Across Times, published by Reaction. Virginia, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. It has been wonderful. I'm very, very grateful that you asked me and uh, good luck with all of your interviews. 